Amen. Please be seated. And turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning, or you can find the passage, the four verses from Romans that will be our focus there on the insert in your bulletin. This is the last of four brief sermon meditations in an Advent series related to the incarnation of Christ. Packer said in Knowing God, the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. He is right about this. In particular, we have been considering certain impacts or practical outflows of the incarnation, um, our perception of the glory of God in the incarnation and how that impacts our worship and our life. Also, the humility of God to become man impacts our ability to be humble with one another. Certainly, if the God of the universe, the very creator, could become man, we can be humble towards one another. And then also, we learned that one of the chief motivators for our being generous is the generosity of God, that he would give his son, uh, as he did, for us. Certainly, we could give. And we should look at the stuff of earth um, and hold on to it in a much looser fashion, knowing how readily God gave Christ for us and how willing Christ was to give himself for us. So for the final meditation, we will look at a verse in Romans 8, uh, but the verses around it, of course, as well, that refers us to our freedom as it relates to the incarnation. Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, and our focus will be on the matter of freedom and the incarnation in the first four verses. So here as I read God's holy inspired word, starting at verse 1 of chapter 8, I will read to verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your precious word. What a gift it is to us. Through your word, we come to know Christ and salvation. Through your word, we come to understand your will and learn of your special aid by the Holy Spirit. Please give us understanding and appreciation of the profound truths that we will observe in these opening verses of Romans 8. Please encourage us so that we might give you praise by our words and by our deeds pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Through Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, I want to talk to you about freedom related to the incarnation. Now, first, I want to give an illustration about freedom or, our, or freedom as an experience in how a sense of that freedom impacts how you live your life. Bear with me because I think it's important. We come with a certain view of things, even as Christians, that impacts how we relate to the freedom purchased for us, really, by God through Christ. Some years ago, 26 years ago now, a movie came out, The Shawshank Redemption. It's a fictional story of Andy Dufresne, 
who was wrongly accused of killing his wife and her lover. He was given two life sentences and sent to the Shawshank Penitentiary uh, where he was supposed to spend the rest of his life. While he was there, he met several men who had been prisoners, really for the balance of their lives. These men knew nothing but being prisoners. They, don't rem- they didn't remember a time before they were slaves to the penitentiary. That's all they knew. That's what they remember. One man was the elderly Brooks Hatlin. Brooks had long forgotten what freedom was like. He only lived as a prisoner. His schedule, the rules, the jobs, the way that he related with the guards, the way he related uh, and survived with the other prisoners. This is all he knew. This is the life he lived. Brooks only knew this life. At least that's all he can remember. After serving a 50-year sentence, he was released. And he didn't know how to cope with life on the outside. He didn't know how to live with his newfound freedom. He was legally free now, but he couldn't get his mind and his life around that reality. He wrote back to his friends in the prison, and he expressed his difficulties, his many difficulties adjusting to the outside world, grasping the idea that he was free, living in constant fear, longing to break his parole so that he could go back to what he was calling his home. He was insecure and anxious and simply broke down eventually, and tragically, he took his own life, unable to deal with this freedom that he actually had. The man that Andy became best friends with was Ellis Redding, otherwise known as Red. Red was similar to Brooks in that he had been a prisoner for decades when he met Andy. After 40 years, Red was going to be released, and by that time, Andy had escaped. Red was going to be released, and just like Brooks, he was growing anxious about how he would live with this newfound freedom that he knew would be his legally, but how would he cope? And he had a great struggle coping. In every basic aspect of life, he had trouble living and functioning. He had to ask people for everything all the time because he wasn't used to not having people tell him what to do. He was struggling, and he was spiraling in the same direction that Brooks was, that Brooks had and went to. But then he recalled, through Andy's instruction, that he was supposed to go to a certain location in a field and find a box. And in that box, there would be provisions for Red to live as a free man. He followed Andy's instructions, and eventually, when he found the box, he found $5,000 tickets and instructions for him to get to the place Andy had already arrived at in Mexico, this beautiful resort where he could go live and experience the fullness of his newfound freedom. He could actually live in it without the baggage of feeling like he was still a prisoner no matter what. I give this as an opening illustration because I think many Christians still live like they're prisoners to sin. They're slaves to sin. Now some people Uh, came out of a life of sin and then became Christians, and that's very vivid, that illustration, struggling to understand what it means when the Bible says you are free in Christ. But even for a believer who's been a Christian their whole life, you may be struggling with sin in such a way that makes you doubt your salvation. Why am I struggling with this sin if I'm actually free in Christ? How is it that I still live like a prisoner to this or that habit or thought or whatever it may be? and you struggle with this, and you struggle with the fact of your freedom and the reality of your ongoing struggle, I think it's somewhat related, or we can think of these two characters, Brooks and Red, and the struggle they had, and how one never could handle his freedom and understand it and live according to it, and the other one finally did because he was given some revelation. 
he was given some clues, some clarity about how to go do this. He had to take a step, if you will, to go do this. And it was through understanding what his friend, who was already free, explained to him. To some degree, imagine you are going to that box trying to figure out freedom. The freedom you know is yours. You're free to go open the box. And we're opening the Word of God. And we're seeing what the Scripture tells us. Because what it tells us is meant to help us live in the freedom that is ours. And that's what culminates in Romans 8. This description of what is ours in Christ. In particular, Christ coming in the flesh, referred to here in the passage, as our representative, which demands some explanation, provides us with ultimate, eternal life-changing freedom. Not just something that we look forward to, but even now, the whole of the perspective of our life is different, living in light of the freedom that is actually ours. To experience the freedom is to know the truth of it first and then have it permeate and work its way out in the life that you live, in the experiences that you have. Now, jumping into Romans 8 without uh, any background would be unwise. Um, we need to gain some understanding of the overall biblical teaching that leads to Romans 8 and then just a bit about the context immediately before Romans 8 in the book itself. First, the wider biblical context to remind you of. Adam is introduced in the, book of Ad, in the book of Genesis as our representative head, this actual historical person who represented all mankind who fell into sin. In this sense, every person is in Adam. We are all sinners in Adam, through Adam, as our federal or our legal head. He represented us. We know that we are sinners. Um, we are aware of this, and the reason we are sinners is because of this first sin. So it's fair to say all are in Adam unless they are in Christ, secondarily or when presented, when God places us in Christ. We're in the first Adam. The first Adam is what the Bible introduces. That's how we know our problem, our sin problem, and our estrangement from God. But almost immediately upon uh, telling us of the first Adam and how we're sinful in him, there's the promise of a second Adam to come who will undo what the first Adam did. And this is the promise of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who is forecasted from the very beginning of the scriptures just about right after the fall of man, right after Adam falls, then the story is the promise of Christ coming, his incarnation to come so that he could fulfill the work that the first Adam failed at and pay our price. That's the story of the Bible. That's the biblical context for Romans chapter 8. Before we get to Romans 8, Paul writes in another place, for as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, the second Adam, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So that brings us to the book of Romans. We understand who Adam is, who we are in Adam, our lost state, our being in sin. But then Romans introduces the whole message of Christianity in a very succinct, logical way. A way that anybody can understand as they read and see what the story of the gospel is. In Romans 3, it reveals that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, placing us all squarely in Adam. But then in Romans 5, we see the turn where the second Adam is introduced. In Romans 5, 12 and following, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Romans 5 goes on, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now the introduction of Christ as the second Adam. 
For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. That's the commandments revealed through Moses that reflect the righteousness of God. And we as sinners know the righteousness of God and we don't stand up under it. We can't follow it. We can't keep it. And so the law came to increase the trespass. Our knowledge of understanding of how sinful we are came through this. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're given Christ as Savior, that we can turn from our place in Adam and turn to Christ, the second Adam, find ourselves in him by faith, and now we receive freedom. Freedom that's manifold, and I want us to see at least to begin to see in these first verses of Romans 8. Now, before you get to Romans 8, there is a very practical issue that arises that I brought up to you already, and I want us to consider it. Even though we may be found in Christ, just like I described, and I trust most of you are in Christ, you rest in Christ, you know you're a sinner, and that Christ is your only hope of salvation, you rest in him as the second Adam, you're not in the first Adam anymore, you're in Christ. You know that's true. But you're struggling with sin. You still feel like you're living as a prisoner. Like you got out of the prison, but you're not living like it. Why is this the case? Well, first of all, fear not. This is not abnormal. Romans 7, just before Romans 8, is a depiction of someone who's in Christ, but still struggling against sin. They know what they're supposed to do, but they can't seem to do it. The things they don't want to do, they find themselves doing. That's a picture of someone who cares about God's righteousness. That's not a picture of an unbeliever struggling with stuff. An unbeliever doesn't struggle with it. Now, they may struggle with things that hurt them immediately, and so they'll stay from that behavior, but not because they're worried about offending God. Romans 7 is a depiction of a genuine believer who is struggling just like most of us experience at various epochs and times in our life with some kind of sin. That's Romans 7. But Romans 8 comes along and brings us back. So if you're in that state, Romans 8 says to you, remember who you are in Christ and what that means. Knowing what it means will then have the impact in this life in real ways to help you defeat or see sin defeated. Not completely in this life, that still remains. But you'll see enough of it to recognize the truth of God's glorious salvation working itself out in your life and you'll always still be dependent upon him because you won't arrive at this perfect glorious state in this life. But that's what Romans 8 pictures. That's the freedom we have because God has become man for us. That's what we enjoy because of Christ's coming. Christ's coming in the flesh as our representative provides us with ultimate eternal life-changing freedom. I, I want you to see in these opening verses we have freedom from God's condemnation because Christ became man. We also have freedom from sin's domination. I don't mean you'll be sinless in this life, but it's domination over you. You're given freedom from that because of Christ and the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Finally, we also have freedom to follow the commands that God gives us. Not for salvation, we never could do that, but as a result of the legal freedom, the positional freedom we have before the Father, the relief we get from our guilt and our shame being shed by Jesus taking it allows us to turn and obey our Father because of his love for us shown in Christ and the provision of his Holy Spirit to help 
or to give us aid to walk with him and to grow in holiness. All of this because Christ became man on our behalf. First, look at verse 1, and we see uh, Paul making us aware of our freedom from condemnation. Condemnation is a legal term that is our state before we are in Christ. And in Christ, we are free from this. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Therefore is hearkening back to the buildup from Romans 1 to 7 about us being sinners, about the first Adam, about the second Adam, about our faith in him about our rest in him and our position in him. And there, even though we're struggling with sin though, Romans 7, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But I'm struggling with sin. Certainly God doesn't love me. No, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what's true. That's not what Jesus accomplished. Even though you struggle, in the midst of those struggles, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I want you to think of this term condemn, condemn, condemnation. God is the righteous creator of the universe. His holiness and righteousness, they are the, they are the universal standard. And because of sin, we stand condemned rightly, justly before God. It is a justified condemnation and we know it. You know, there was a building that I was aware of growing up, not far from where I lived, that had a big orange sticker on it, and basically said the building was condemned. No one was supposed to go in it. It sat there for longer than it should have. It was an unsafe place. And I remember reading what it said on it. It was just a creepy place. No one lived there, and it seemed as though it was terribly unsafe by everything that was said on that sticker. Um, it was condemned, in big writing, condemned. What does this mean? Uh, because of its condition, because it could not be rehabilitated, it could not be restored, it would be too costly to fix, or it might not have been possible to fix it. It stood condemned. The only thing it was good for was destruction. Um, that's what it is to be condemned. And apart from Christ, in Adam, we are condemned. And the feeling one might have about that condemnation is a right feeling if they're really in it. And really, when you feel that condemnation, that's actually a grace from God that steers you in the only place that you can find salvation. But that condemnation that we think of for those who are not in Christ, it grieves us. It, makes, it, it grieves us to know people would be under this condemnation because we are aware of the holiness of God. We are aware we deserve that condemnation. But now because of Christ, it is lifted. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not there is a little condemnation still to come. There's no condemnation. No condemnation equals being justified. So if we don't have condemnation now as a status, slated for destruction because that's all we deserve, we have none of that, that means we're justified before him. We're right before him. That's the message that begets a life lived according to freedom. It's a legal statement about who we are. We are free from God's condemnation now because of Christ. You have to start there to actually see sin defeated in your life, to see the freedom that you actually have over sin's domination starts with a recognition of the removal of your condemnation because of what Christ has provided. In verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? The law of the spirit of life. Paul's using the law here because he had been using the word law normally to mean 
the whole of God's commandments. You could think of him as summed up in the Ten Commandments. So he's been using this term, the law, mostly negatively in Romans because people were realizing through it that they could not keep God's righteous requirements. It condemned them. Um, the listing of the Ten Commandments, for instance, we look at them and we know we violate them. And we know that we never could keep them. We can never make ourselves right through this because we can't do this. Yet, it's right for God to demand this because he is all of this. He's this righteousness. So Paul's been telling them about the law and how it's been bringing a further cycle of sin because we get so depressed and down over how bad we are in light of it that we cycle into more sin and it ultimately leads to death. The cycle of sin and death that comes from the law and that respect of the law. So he's speaking that way and now he's reminding them your condemnation is removed legally, positionally, forensically is a big word for it. It's removed. Now God sees you as not condemned anymore. You're in Christ. And so what does this mean? Verse 2, the law of the spirit the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. The spirit of God unites you with Christ where you find your life, where you find eternal life. Now that's who you stand before the Father in is Christ. This is freedom from condemnation because you're safe in Christ. And this is what God sees and now you are free. All because God agrees to become man on your behalf. Christ comes for you to fulfill this role and remove your condemnation. And through the law of the spirit of life, you're set free now from the law of sin and death, which stands and condemns and brings condemnation. The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. You'll notice in these four verses that the Trinity is on full display. God willing for this to occur, the Son agreeing to come in the flesh for us, and the Spirit applying these impacts to us in real time. Uh, it's a beautiful display of the Trinitarian nature of our full salvation found in the Christ becoming man for us. Now, I want you to notice the second point that we lead to. Understanding our legal position is the starting place. Practically, we're trying to get to how do we see sin defeated in our life? I feel like a slave. I keep doing this thing I don't want to do. We start first with our no condemnation. Now we move to a reality that is ours because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, giving us faith to lay hold of Christ, bringing us in union with Christ so that we're not condemned. This begins to become more fleshed out as a way of speaking here in the passage as it continues. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, we know that means condemnation before God, but there's also a practical slavery that happens when we're in Adam. We're just prone to sin all the time and have no power really to do otherwise. But sin's domination is lifted in Christ. I don't mean we're free in this life from sin, but because of our positional righteousness, which is what God counts, we have opportunity now to see actual victory over sins in our life, in this life, this short life we live, ultimately building to the removal of that power completely in glory. But for now, a full display of God's glory is, is its fullest when he shows this sanctifying process in the life of those who are justified. You are growing in God's holiness as sins are defeated. Yes, new ones come up in your mind that you didn't even think about before. That's part of the life that God calls us to, and he wants us in that place to go back to our positional righteousness, to go back to Christ, to recognize where our righteousness comes from, where our, we're justified before God. All of that helps us see sin defeated so that sin no longer dominates you like you might feel like it does but i feel like a prisoner but you're not any longer you're really out you really are free 
And God will give you the ability to confront whatever it is. It could be a struggle. It could be difficult. It could last the whole of your life where you're wrestling with it. But that's because he's with you working against it, ultimately to glorify himself in glory when it all comes to a place of eternity. And you could look back and give all praise to God for what he totally freed you from when it's all said and done. But for now, we're still living now. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What did God do? He sent Christ. That's what we see next. How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now, let's pause a moment and look at the passage. In verse 3, it begins, for God has done what the law, we just said what the law is. This is this embodiment of God's righteousness uh, given to us, summarized in the Ten Commandments. This law is a perfect display of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with the law. Here's what's wrong with the law as far as we're concerned. The next phrase, weakened by the flesh. Because of us being in Adam, we can't keep it. And so the law, there's a sense of tarnish that happens because of our inability. It is no help to us now, not in a real sense. At least, though, it points us to the fact that we are deficient, that we have a deficit of righteousness. So the law does do that, but it's weakened now. It doesn't have its full display of glory because of our weakened flesh. And it cannot justify us because we can't do it. So what does he do? He sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. For this sin that we commit, he sends his son, and he sends his son not just as an angel to pay for our sins or just as some other being, but he does so in the likeness of sinful flesh, not as sinful flesh, but in our likeness as a man to relate with us, to identify us, to be the second Adam, our actual representative as a human being, a true human being. So in the likeness of sinful flesh, he becomes man so that he can live according to the law perfectly, actively purchasing us righteousness, and then, despite not deserving it, take our sins upon him and then pay for those at the cross. And then God authenticating or verifying that he receives the sacrifice as the second Adam. He raises Jesus from the dead and he is raises him and ascends him into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God now and he makes intercession for us even now. All of this has nothing to do with whether you sin the next moment or not. Because I know we all will in some way and it bears no difference on your freedom in Christ. It bears no difference on how he looks at you or how he loves you. Boy, that's, that's dangerous, Pastor. Hold on, you're telling people to go out and sin. I'm saying I know you're going to sin. But I also know that you are free from condemnation in Christ, and the more you know that, I think the less you'll sin. I happen to think that the opportunity pastorally for me to help you see sin defeat in your life is far greater declaring the truth of what the gospel is, and you, by God's spirit working, receiving the conviction that only he can give that helps you say no to things you would normally say yes to all the time, opportunity for that kind of sanctification is real, whereas the kind where I make you feel so guilty about the sinner you know you are, and you go out of here and for a few minutes you do really well. Some of you an hour will do really well. Most will crash in two hours and feel worse than you did before and maybe go worse into whatever it was. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what we know further, God has done what the law weakened in the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that 
the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That doesn't mean that because he's done this work in our life, we now will live righteously and then be able to keep up the law. That's not what it means. It means because we're in Christ, he'll always see you as in Christ. And thus, you will always be fulfilling the law in Christ. As long as you're in Christ, you have righteousness. That's what is meant by this. And that means that actual sin in your life that you thought was enslaving you, it's not holding you slave like you thought it was. Any sin that we commit can be defeated by God's spirit working in us through Christ and his intercession and his mediation before the Father in the work he's doing in your life. I'm not saying any of it will be easy. I'm not saying it won't take a lifetime of struggling against it and steps forward and steps back. But there can be real victories won in this life against those sins because of Christ. It's not hopeless, whatever it is. And if you do sin or you do mess up, he still loves you. And he's not losing you and he's not shaken by it like you're shaken. And that knowledge over a course of life will actually help you say no to sin more and more. I'm aware of the concern someone would have if a person preaches what I'm saying. You're just going to teach people to to go have license. Listen, the person who takes that from this probably isn't a Christian at all. A person who thinks I can just go do whatever I want, it doesn't matter, is missing what's just been given for you, is missing what Christ has done on your behalf, completely missing the fact of the gospel itself and what it teaches. Uh, I could not emphasize uh, more strongly how confident I am that declaring the true gospel will give you more victory over sin than anything else. I'm sure of it, personally and corporately and historically. And it's not like I'm just making this up out of nowhere. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me when he came, because he has appointed me or anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's not talking about people living in immediate oppression. He's talking about a much greater liberation that everybody needs. Jesus taught this very thing that I'm saying, this very gospel that I'm preaching. The final freedom that we receive from Christ becoming man is freedom to obey God. I've focused on the negative, the condemnation that's no longer ours, we're free from it, the domination that sin uh, has felt to be over us, we're free from that, but we're also free then to walk with him, to walk in him, and we can do so because he promises the aid of his spirit. Look at verse 3 and then verse 4. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So as we walk in the Spirit, we are able to live out or reflect the actual righteousness of God purchased by Christ and lived out in our lives. And it's by His power. Um, We come to believe because of God's power and we are able to walk in it because of God's power. So you could say that we are justified or made right with God by His grace, His undeserved favor that He shows. And we are sanctified or made more like him or grow in spiritual maturity by his grace, undeserved favor that he shows to his children, those who are united to Christ. Freedom to obey God through Christ is actually ours when we're in Christ. Um, Think of the confidence this should give you. Um, You're going to mess up. 
bring that to God. Confess that to God when it happens. Openly, he's your father who loves you in Christ. And continually be open to your father about your sins. Don't hide those sins. Come to them. They're ever before him anyways. And go to your father. He will not reject you with those. Ask him to help you stop, to help you repent, to turn from it, to rescue you from it if need be. You don't have to live like the prisoner that we, I mentioned at the beginning who just can't cope with life as free, as in freedom. It's sort of like this. Uh, a trapeze artist who does their act in a circus or whatever, uh, when they have a safety net, the kinds of things that they're going to try are far more risky and greater and amazing to watch because they know if they fall, they're going to be okay. To some degree, it's like that. You're going to be okay in Christ if you're in him, if you rest in him. You're going to mess up. But you're going to also see victory. You should look to see victory. You'll see ways in which the Spirit of God works in you as a response to the grace shown to you. Not because you're scared of God, but you fear God with reverence and appreciate what he has done for you and want him to help you turn away from that thing that you feel enslaved to. God will give us aid to obey. In this sense, one of the freedoms we have is a freedom to obey when we couldn't before. I love what our uh, confession of faith does It tries to summarize the Bible's teaching on the whole about the freedom we have in Christ. The freedom we have because Jesus has become man. Listen to the wording of chapter 20 in our confession. The liberty or the freedom which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law. We're free from all of that. And in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin from the, evil, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, the everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love in a willing mind. Being freed of all these things that come with our sin, frees us then to walk and follow our Father. That's the message. John records Jesus saying to the Jews who had believed in him, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This isn't just a temporal freedom. This is way greater than that. Way greater than that. Paul writing his first letter, no doubt, uh, probably the first letter he wrote to the Galatians, he writes in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to prison. You're not a prisoner anymore. Romans 8, and I close with this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Christ coming in the flesh as our representative provides us with ultimate, eternal, life-changing freedom. Let's pray. Lord, there are, are many who probably still live as prisoners of sin or feel like they are, like they're slaves to it, and therefore probably worry about your love for them. Lord, remind us afresh of the freedom purchased for us by Christ. 
Remind us afresh of the good news of the gospel. I pray through the ministry of your word and the work of your spirit, all here who know Christ would truly experience the joy of their actual freedom and the blessed benefits that come from their right standing with you. And for those who do not know you, I pray that you would bring them to salvation. Bring them to Christ according to your will. He came to save us from hell, but also came to save us to fellowship with you and obedience to you. I pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.